Hello, and welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Arbitral Insights podcast series. I'm delighted to have as our guest today the Honourable Barry Leon. Hello, Barry. Hello, and great to be here. Thank you, Barry. Great to have you. Barry is um, a distinguished lawyer uh, of some distinction. And at the risk of embarrassing Barry, I'm going to give him a very brief introduction. Uh, Many of us will know Barry, have met Barry, have worked with Barry. But Barry, for many years, was uh, a partner in two very prestigious Canadian law firms, Tories, and then secondly, at Pearlie, Robertson, Hill and McDougall. And in that latter firm, he was the head of international arbitration. And after a very distinguished career in Canada, Barry moved to the Caribbean to become a judge. So he spent three years as a judge. He served in the BVI Commercial Court as the presiding judge commercial division in the Eastern Caribbean Supreme Court. And he did that from 2015 to 2018 covering a wide variety of cases, and since his retirement from the bench, is now a full-time arbitrator and mediator, practicing, frankly, globally. And it never, it always astounds me just how energetic and what a globetrotted Barry is, but he has chambers in Canada, in Toronto. He's a member of 33 Bedford Row here in the UK, in London, And in fact, I'm doing this podcast today where Barry is actually in the BVI. So uh, it's great to have you again uh, here, Barry, and thank you very, very much for making time for us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Right, now, Barry, the the first question I want to ask you is, let's wind the clock back. What, first of all, enticed you to want to be a lawyer? Well, there is no enticement or no inspirational story uh, that led to me becoming a lawyer. In fact, my career throughout has really been an example of what Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) I mean, to start with, there were no lawyers in my family. After I became a lawyer, both my brothers became lawyers and and my brother Jeff's daughter became a lawyer, but, but I was the first. And as I try to to think back on, on how I got into law, there, there was really just circumstance. I was leaning against sciences. And so when I did my undergraduate degree in Western Canada, it was in arts, political science, economics, English literature. When I finished that, I was trying to decide between law and business because those seemed to be business school. Those seemed to be the two options. I decided to do an MBA thinking that if I wanted to go into law later, I could do that and a business education would stand me in good stead. So I was right about that. I went to uh, the Ivy Business School at Western University in London, uh, as it now is. And then when we got to the end of our first year and people started looking for jobs, the job market was terrible. And particularly for people 
like me and the few others in my class who had no real work experience in business. So I, my roommate said, I think I'm going to apply to, to law school. And I wrote the uh, law school admission exams uh, along with him. He wound up going into a, a business job and I wound up going to law school. But uh, there's not much more excitement to the story. I didn't plan on law and just came to a fork in the road and took one of the turns and it led me to law. Well, well, it's still a, well, it's a, it's a great thing that that fork in the road took you in that direction uh, because it's led to many great things. And, and Barry, I'm going to, you know, say I've known you for uh, now at least 15 years. And that's the first time I've heard you make an analogy with Yogi Bear. So I shall not forget <laughs> that one in a hurry. So, <laughs> and it'll make this podcast particularly memorable, I can tell you. Um, well, I'm sure you're a baseball fan. So. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've got to tell you, well, I, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say this. Uh, I first met you, as you'll recall, in 2006 at the International Law Association Conference in Toronto, which you were the co-chair of. And that was my first ever visit to Canada and indeed to Toronto, indeed. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that conference. I was a speaker at one of the events. I met many of your colleagues and and, and other wonderful delegates. And I remember um, on my way back home uh, at Toronto Airport, I, ha- I had to buy uh, my children some uh, you know, t-shirts to mark the uh, event and so I found a t-shirt which my son still has which says Americans are nice but not on the ice and uh, so <laughs> that one is a particularly <laughs> special family favorite even now even though my son has far outgrown that t-shirt but uh, anyway now let me say apart from baseball and Yogi Bear and all that sort of stuff we all are the beneficiaries of mentors and inspirations during our career. And as your very distinguished career has developed, if you can just think back to some of those formative years and even, you know, a bit further on in your career, are there some individuals um, who've really inspired you and who've really had an impact on your career? There are. And, and because so many of my years of practice were spent at Tories practicing commercial disputes. The people I think of were the people who were the senior people in the group when I started. Some of them, as one always knows, that senior doesn't is, is relative. So at the time, it was a young group. <clears throat> the most senior person in the group was, I think, age 38 or 39 when I started. And so it was is that small group of, of litigators primarily, but some corporate lawyers who are transactional lawyers who I worked with, uh, the names probably won't mean a lot to most of the people listening to this podcast, but, you know, Lauren Morphy, uh, who was the head of the group and remains somebody who I stay in touch with, uh, Bob Armstrong, who became a head of the Law Society in, in uh, Ontario and then a Court of Appeal judge and is now an arbitrator. And there's Sheila Block, who was an, another great litigator who I worked closely with and was a couple of years ahead of me. And then on the transactional side, there was the senior part in the firm, uh, Jim Torrey, who was a wonderful person and I learned a lot from uh, sometimes just sitting in his office and listening to one side of the phone call. You learn about dealing with people and negotiating. And so it was that group from, from Tories who really probably had the 
both without question had the, the greatest influence on how I practiced, how I am as an arbitrator, approach to dealing with people, to negotiating, to, to mediating, uh, all of those things. Thank you, Barry. And, you know, let's sort of now just sort of focus on the world of arbitration and how you first became involved in arbitration. You know, tell us a little bit about that, uh, because you've obviously done a lot in the field, but how did it first start off for you? Well, as you might have guessed from the answer I gave to your, your first question about how I got into law, I stumbled into to arbitration. My career was doing primarily commercial and corporate litigation. And in the early years, it was domestic. Uh, gradually, it became more international. And it, it was that way for a lot of people in the world as, as disputes became more international and business became more international. And so if one is involved in international disputes, there's a, a big arbitration component to it. Initially, I was involved in things like the IBA International Litigation Committee and, and had a number of cases. And, and in Canada, of course, a lot can be international because there will be Canadian subsidiaries of uh, primarily U.S., but sometimes English or other companies. So you're, you're into an international situation a lot. And then I recall, you know, the interest in, in, in arbitration was that you're dealing with people uh, in a wide range of jurisdictions, people of different legal cultures, different ways of doing things. So it, it, it was something that I found interesting. And slowly arbitration became a greater and greater part of my disputes practice. And then around, I would have said, uh, just around the time of the ILA conference that you mentioned, I began to think more seriously about really focusing exclusively on international arbitration. And that took us into the beginning of the recession, which was a great time to be trying to make a career change. And so while I was doing arbitration at, at Tories, my thought became to, to find a situation where I could really make arbitration full-time. Unfortunately, somebody in the middle of a recession without a book of business and arbitration uh, is not a, a great find for anybody on the recruiting side in a, in a law firm that does international arbitration. And so one thing led to another, and that led to me connecting with Andrew McDougall, who had come back to Canada to uh, do what I was doing is to, to practice international arbitration as counsel from Canada. And uh, he and I wound up working together for a number of years at Pearlie Robertson, and which was a, a regional firm that had some arbitration, but uh, our focus was to have an international arbitration boutique counsel practice. And, and uh, that's what we worked away on. And that's what I continued to do until I took the job in the British Virgin Islands. Thank you. And I'm going to turn to the British Virgin Islands in a moment. But I just want to ask you one thing, which I noticed, you know, in uh, because although I've known you for a long time, Barry, I mean, I always like to look, you know, people up before I do a podcast with them, because there's never a monopoly on wisdom uh, or knowledge. And uh, I noticed that you had you had circulated on LinkedIn a, a, a recent direction, I guess, or a suggestion 
by the Supreme Court of Ontario that senior practitioners should share advocacy briefs or duties with junior colleagues. And I found that fascinating because I think that's such an important thing and a very insightful thing because not many senior courts have actually made such suggestions. So I just wonder whether you could just tell us a little bit about that and what your thoughts are about that, because you know, you're a seasoned advocate, but you know, you've obviously learned over the years. And so your thoughts would be interesting on that, please, Barry. Well, that's something that I had always I had grown up with. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the people that I had worked with in my early years. It was routine that you would get a piece of the case, a witness, a piece of the argument, unless it was totally inappropriate for the circumstances. And this is not a direct answer to your question, but I think it's worth mentioning that when you were assumed what the Americans would call the senior chair, the other person would become the junior. And so they would pass the notes to you. They would find the the case or the document or whatever it was that you're struggling to find. And so you you learn a lot by that kind of assistance. And then you would debrief afterwards. You would get constructive criticism, uh, sometimes very constructive, because there's no, in what we do in, in advocacy, often you don't have the chance to have a senior person who you work with give you feedback. So uh, to me, that was natural. And I remember in my first year attending as a judge in BBI attending the commercial bar meeting, which was held somewhere in the Caribbean. And there was some discussion about this and and people paid lip service to it, uh, both the judges and the barristers. But I didn't get the sense that they had the same experience as I did. And then as a judge in BBI, Almost all of the uh, significant advocacy was done by usually uh, senior English barristers. And there was never any sharing of the, of the argument. And even on occasions where there was the note passing, which I'm sure you've encountered, and it was clear that the person on his or her feet had no clue about the particular issue. And I would say, why doesn't uh, Ms. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so just explain the point? And uh, usually be a horrified look on the Silk's face. And I would do the same uh, even more so with with, uh, insolvency practitioners where the lawyer is trying to explain what the insolvency practitioner did and really didn't have any clear understanding. It would just call on the insolvency practitioner as an officer of the court to to explain it. Uh, And and so to me, it makes a lot of sense from a a training and and development point of view. I did read at one point that a few American courts, and in in the US, there's judges who will write their own procedural rules for their court, which is an interesting approach. And they would either encourage or even mandate the second person having an opportunity. And I'm pretty sure that Either the ICDR or CPR has done things to encourage that, maybe both of them. Thank you, Barry. And, you know, that sort of takes us directly into the uh, Caribbean and uh, your life as a judge. Uh, I you mentioned in the opening that you'd spent three years on the bench in the Caribbean, uh, based in the British Virgin Islands. 
And, you know, I've never actually asked you this question, Barry, as to what led to you taking up the position as a judge. And because I would have thought the most sort of ideal jurisdiction for you would have been Canada. But so I was so, you know, when we got a message that you were now a judge in the BVI, and I still remember receiving that message, I thought, wow. So Barry, tell us a little bit about how you came to become a judge in the BVI. Well, I never wanted to be a judge in Canada, never applied to be a judge in Canada. One of the reasons I didn't want to be deciding cases in areas that weren't of particular interest to me. So at the time I saw the posting, which was for the the job in BVI, which was circulated uh, by the Commonwealth Lawyers Association, because the requirement was you needed to be a Commonwealth lawyer to, to apply. I was at that point, I was perhaps spending 35% of my time sitting as an arbitrator or working as a mediator. And I, I enjoyed counsel work. I wasn't at the point where I was thinking of, of, of reducing or giving up counsel work by any means. But it just struck me, well, here's a job that is deciding large, interesting international commercial disputes. It would be a wonderful transition. I'm never going to get the job, but why don't I put in an application, which is one of those things that comes into your inbox and you decide not to delete it. And so I made a serious application, had some wonderful support from some uh, referees who uh, probably you would know if I I gave their names. And uh, to my great surprise, I got an interview, uh, which was done. uh, This was in the days before Zoom. And and, uh, so I went to a facility where I could do a video conference properly and had the interview. Uh, It went well because I guess you're relaxed in an interview where you don't think you have much of a prospect of of getting the job. And we had a good conversation, but I still figured that was nice. It was a good experience. And that was the end of it. And then to my great surprise, I was in Australia for some arbitration related thing. And I got this message saying that they were offering me the job. So that's how I got there. It was another one of these come to the fork in the road situations. Well, that Yogi Bear analogy strikes again, Barry. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, that's another one that I, that I think was a wonderful destiny, you know, for you. So, so you had a very interesting time on the bench deciding all sorts of commercial cases from company and law, joint ventures, insolvency, arbitration matters, enforcement of arbitration. And how did your time on the bench, how has that impacted your new role, if I can call it a new role, or your renewed role as an arbitrator and mediator? I don't know that it, it, it's impacted it in a way that you can say, uh, you know, I learned this as a judge and I brought it to, to arbitration. There's the obvious differences between court proceedings and arbitration that, that we all know. I think each of the two, my experience as an arbitrator before I went to be on the BVI commercial court and my experiences on the court have contributed to how I approach the other as a judge, you miss some of the things that arbitration has to offer in terms of the flexibility and procedure, the informality, the front end loading, if I can call it that. 
certainly the the a big difference is the appeals uh, in, in BVI because of the significance of the case is almost everything is appealed and often appealed again to the, the Privy Council if, if, if it can be. And, and that probably affects a little bit how you write your judgments because, you know, the expression you write for the loser that you often hear people say in, in arbitration or as judges, I, I think when you know you're going to be appealed, you want to make sure that you do the, you're not just writing for the loser, you want the appellate court to understand what your reasoning was. And so I think it probably leads you to be more more thoughtful uh, in, in writing your decisions. In arbitration, you've got to control over your workload, which you don't have when you're the only judge on a busy commercial court. And the, the other thing about arbitration is you're sitting with two other people often. Uh, and, and the difference between sitting alone and sitting, which you, you of course, you do in arbitration as well, and sitting with others is, is significant. I, I didn't appreciate how much the people you're sitting with can be helpful in, in just in terms of the opportunity to exchange ideas. So I I, I guess I look at the two as a, a continuum of, of, of learning and experience. And, you know, I, I enjoy being a judge. I would happily sit for a short term as a commercial or appellate court hearing commercial cases. So it, it's, I think, just a, an expanded experience, the way anything you do in, as an advocate in different forums it uh, broadens your, your thinking, your, it gives you more insight into to different ways of approaching things. When you're in a court that's under-resourced, you appreciate how, how lovely it is to have what we have in a lot of international arbitration cases, an abundance of, of resources for, for everyone. Thank you, Barry. And, you know, so, you know, since uh, your retirement from the bench, you now have you're resident at Arbitration Chambers in Toronto, also at 33 Bedford Row in London. Tell us a little bit about how, I mean, I know there's never a typical way of life when you're an arbitrator and mediator, and certainly, certainly not in these times of the pandemic. But how would you, could you share your time between different jurisdictions? How does it look like when you're Conducting such an international practice as an arbitrator and mediator to uh, you know be you know based in different places. Well, let me just start by saying, actually, in Toronto, it's Arbitration Place is the name of the chambers where where there is an arbitration chambers, as, as you know, in, in London and New York and uh, Hong Kong. But but uh, that aside, when I finished my time on the BVI court, which was uh, early 2018, my plan was to split my time uh, to keep a place in, in BVI, but to spend a, a lot of time in other places, particularly in London, in Canada, uh, in New York, and, and uh, a few other places where there's a lot of arbitration done and, and where I knew a lot of people and, and uh, had spent a lot of time over the years. And so my thought was that I'd be in London four to six times a year for a period of time. I would uh, use 33 Bedford Row as, as a, a good base. And then, of course, COVID came along and, and so much for 
the travel that all of us used to do. But as we emerge from COVID, uh, whenever and however that happens, my plan is really to, to continue to do the same thing, to, to, to spend a chunk of time through the course of a year in, in London uh, and in Canada. And then uh, I've been doing arbitration work in the Caribbean and I'll spend some time in the Caribbean, but but uh, obviously spending time in major centers of arbitration is uh, what makes sense for somebody who is uh, doing uh, work as an arbitrator and, and a mediator, uh, perhaps less so, less important now as uh, virtual has become so much a part of our lives, but, but uh, obviously still uh, being with people, uh, both for hearings or networking and, and so forth is going to be uh, an important part of uh, all of our lives uh, for the foreseeable future, I think. Yeah, and that leads to, to a very interesting point, Barry, that you pick up on, because the world of arbitration is so global. It, it involves or did involve immense amounts of travel across different time zones. So from your perspective now as an arbitrator, how have you found the new concept, the new different, as I call it, of virtual hearings. At some point, we will get back to a larger number of in-person hearings, but that's still somewhere away. So how have you found this new transition? So sitting, you know, as a panel of three, you would often have people in the room, a crowded room of people around you, counsel, clients, the witnesses, the experts, they're in person. What's been the biggest impact for you, apart from obviously not being in the same room, of doing virtual hearings? Well, I think one impact is the difficulty of a tribunal interacting uh, in a hearing or outside of the hearing, particularly when you haven't worked with one or, or both of the co-arbitrators in the past. So you haven't had that experience having dinner together, having drinks together, just getting to know the person, uh, breaking bread together, as the expression goes. And and so you just don't have, uh, or it's not as easy to develop the same kind of uh, open rapport. Now, I, I've been fortunate that the people that I have uh, been sitting with have all been people who, uh, not that I necessarily knew them before, but, but forming connections uh, virtually hasn't been impossible, but it's still, you know, the ability to pass notes, to to lean over and say something. It's something you miss, but neither in-person hearings nor virtual hearings nor hybrid hearings are ever going to be all things to all people and they're never going to be perfect. So you uh, gain some things, you lose some things. Obviously, the move to virtual and hybrid has uh, done a lot for efficiency and for, for cost, has helped drive us into uh, the adoption of technology, which we wouldn't have otherwise done. And the, the consequences of the pandemic, I think, have had other lasting effects beyond arbitration hearings, which I'm happy to talk a little bit about, uh, because I think those may be uh, as or more significant uh, of a change in, in the world of arbitration uh, over the coming years. Uh, please do, Barry, please. 
So one of the, th- the things, and I'm I'm not the only person to have thought of this or been talking about it, is that suddenly, and it really was suddenly, probably took a, a month or so before webinars uh, sprung into life. And what that means, as we know, is that there are webinars available daily, and it's opened up education and training and arbitration to almost everyone in the world, anywhere they are, regardless of their income, regardless of their other commitments, because now most of them are, are recorded and available to, to shift time. So the, the early problem of, of things from Singapore being in the middle of the night uh, in the Eastern time zone or, or vice versa uh, doesn't exist. So you have the opportunity to hear the greatest arbitration arbitrators, the greatest arbitration academics. It's given an opportunity to younger voices, to voices from other parts of the world. Uh, and, and so I think that may turn out, and it, it's also made it, you know, even people in large law firms, as, as you know, didn't have the resources the financial resources, the time resources to travel to, to conferences on a regular basis, they're budgeted and, and so forth. So it, it means that for those who want it, uh, they've been able to get a great exposure. Uh, they've been able to do mooting without having to go to Vienna or Hong Kong or other major moots. And, and we're seeing it with, with some of the initiatives being taken by younger or uh, Arbitrators, arbitration practitioners, or, or arbitration practitioners from parts of the world where you would never uh, hear from them or, or, or see from them, see them when you were attending conferences in, in person. So, I think that's going to be a significant change. And also, I think, and we did a program on this, a, a workshop for the campaign for greener arbitrations. Uh, but it was really the, we call it shaping the future of international arbitration uh, conferences, uh, training and, uh, and uh, events. And I think there, there will be, and I got to know through that, uh, some people unrelated to arbitration who have been very thoughtful about what's going to happen with conferences. And I, I think we're going to find that our conferences won't be uh, going to a place where everybody sits in a big room and listens to a panel. That you can do on your screen. I think it's going to drive conferences to have more uh, networking, more interactive sessions, more workshops, breakout rooms, all of those things. So I, I think there's those kinds of of positive uh, impacts that uh, the pandemic will leave with us in the world of arbitration that uh, will make it a much uh, better uh, area of the profession. Thank you. And I agree with you in, in brief. I agree with you. Now, Barry, just because we've come up to the end of our time, I always um, you know, end the podcast that I do with fabulous people like yourself by asking you some quick fire questions. It's uh, you know, totally non-arbitration or law related. So the first one is, have you got a favorite film? I don't know if I've got one uh, favorite film. But one film that I, I always return to talk about, and probably nobody listening to this podcast will have ever heard of, is Fate <laughs> is the Hunter. I've not heard of it. <laughs> it. It opens with an airplane crashing into a pier, I think it was in San Diego, and you see it the, the pilot trying to land the plane on the beach, and it 
it's all going well. And then there's this pier emerges and the plane uh, explodes and almost everybody on is killed except for one of the flight attendants. And everybody's blaming it on pilot error. And the some friends of the pilot uh, and the flight attendant wind up recreating this flight, doing everything exactly as it was done on a different plane uh, to try to figure out what happened. And I shouldn't give away the surprise ending just in case anybody does watch it, but it, it was... Well, they will now. <laughs> it, 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 it was memorable. And, and I think it, it has some lessons for us in, in what we do in law, just in terms of trying to get behind something that has happened, uh, not necessarily a plane crash, but a... a any of the incidents that lead to disputes. So that that is certainly one. And the other one that I would, and I guess there was an airplane theme in this, but I heard somebody else being interviewed, and I don't think it had anything to do with law, but the favorite movie was Airplane. <laughs> if you recall that, it was... Uh, I, yes, that I do know. <laughs> that was a riot, and it... I don't know. It's it's certainly one of the, the movies that uh, I've seen it a few times in late night television or something, and it, it leaves you laughing. I you know I couldn't agree more, Barry. I think Leslie Nielsen is was a comic genius. Unfortunately, he's no more. Uh, but uh, he was a comic genius, and some of those jokes they're so obvious, but they are so funny. And uh, you know, just the facial gestures and everything else. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so what about music? I mean, what's your favorite sort of music? Any favorite groups, singers, composers? Since my teens, I've been a, a huge Frank Sinatra fan and that genre. But I, I uh, saw Frank Sinatra, I think, probably five, maybe even six times live uh, over the years in Las Vegas and uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, uh, in Toronto. Uh, so uh, I would uh, have, have no uh, question to say that that uh, his music has has been uh, a long time favorite of mine. Uh, but there, you know, I enjoy uh, other music as well, uh, jazz, opera, uh, if you believe this, even hip hop occasionally, and, and certainly I've come to uh, I've come to get to know Caribbean music much more. Absolutely. And uh, it, it grows on you. Well, you're a global citizen, Barry, which takes me to the final thing, which is even though you are truly a global citizen uh, and you travel so extensively, have you got a couple of places around the world, apart from Canada, you know, home, is there anywhere else and, you know, that you really love to visit? There's lots of places, and I know I'm being... Uh totally boring when when I can't say, well, you know, my absolute favorite place in the world is such and such. Um, but that would not be true when you're, uh, I know, seeking the truth. So, I, I mean, there's the, the great cities of the world, which I love, London being one of them, Paris, New York, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, and, and I can, could name others. But then I also like the remote holidays, uh, hiking in the, the middle of nowhere. Did some hiking in, in the southern part of Chile in, in uh, Patagonia uh, or in northern Italy, places where you might not see anybody for the, the better part of a day except for the people you're with. 
So uh, perhaps the, the, what makes any of these places special is the people that you are with, the people you go with, the people you meet. And that can be something that happens uh, obviously anywhere. Uh, and it's you know, coming back to what, what we spoke about earlier, it's one of the great things about uh, the world of international arbitration is you are spending time with people that you, you like or get to know, get to like through the, the business that we're in. Well, thank you, Barry. I and mean, that's a very appropriate spot for us to end. Thank you very, very much. It's been an absolute privilege to do this podcast with you. It's been lovely to talk to you again. Um, I, it's been such a pity we've not been able to see each other for a couple of years. I last saw you in Quebec in uh, February of 2019, which feels like a distant memory now, but I look forward to seeing you before too long. And uh, and one thing I will say to our listeners is, uh, I know you like jazz because I've been to Ronnie Scott's with you. So that's definitely one of the things that, uh, you know, we can have in common. So Barry, thank you very much. It's been an absolute privilege to do this and we'll hopefully meet again very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me and I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.